Let's go back to our text. I'm on page 177 of our notes where I make probably the understatement of the class and I say Calvin's view of the Sabbath is a little complicated. Um, Calvin seems to make statements that appear contradictory. Um, I don't want to get into the weeds of which historical theologians interpret Calvin which way. Calvin's like Augustine. Everybody wants Calvin on their team. And so people tend to... um, Many people tend to do, uh, especially people not trained to do history, will read Calvin superficially. They'll just go to the Institutes and they'll pull something up real quick and assume that that is the fullness of Calvin's view on the Sabbath. Calvin, like many theologians in church history, grows as a theologian. And early Calvin and late Calvin say things a little bit differently with a little bit nuance. And so part of not caricaturing someone is taking their most mature thoughts on an issue. Right? If someone 500 years from now was going to write your biography, would you want them to paint the 20-year-old you or the 60-year-old Christian you? Right? I want them to pick the best side of me. Right? And so, <clears throat> Calvin is perhaps most pastorally concerned and most clear on the issue in his sermons on Deuteronomy later in life. He has his institutes, which are doing something for systematic theology, but you really get a sense of his pastoral heart in those sermons on Deuteronomy. And so Calvin, in those sermons, and similarly in his institutes, will make very clear that festival observances, that Sabbath, that all of those things are figures, quote, they are shadows, right? They prefigure the rest that's going to come in Christ. He bangs that drum very hard, ceremonial, done away with. Sabbath is gone. We are no longer subject, Calvin says, to this ancient servitude of observing the Sabbath day. For it's necessary for us to render honor to Jesus Christ and to to be content ourselves with what He Himself has brought us without longing for having an exterior under the law. So we're not going back to the ceremonial law. It's helpful here. This is good history good historiography. What's Calvin writing about? He's, well, he's pushing back against Rome. He's pushing back against their feasts and their festivals. He's pushing back against a lot of this stuff. That's very important to remember, right? He's not writing in Owensboro in 2020. He's writing right after Luther, right after this big nasty split, this reformation in the church. And there's a lot of people that need to hear it's okay for you to not observe those feasts and festivals you've observed your whole life. You're not under that. You're not under that law. You can see why pastorally it's very important for him to hear, for his people to hear. 
He also emphasizes that the Sabbath was a type of spiritual rest, which we would agree with. <clears throat> he also says that the first and second commandments necessitate a time for corporate worship. Right? And so the Sabbath commandment trains God's people by stipulating a time for corporate worship and for acts of piety. That's what the Jewish Sabbath did in the Old Testament. That's what Christians do on the Lord's Day. This is a regular rhythm for us to know that we need to come together. So it's almost like a default. Third, Calvin believes that the fourth commandment teaches in keeping with God's own example in Genesis 2 that there's a divinely ordained holy order to weekly assembly and that Christians ought to devote the entire day to the Lord. Sounds like kind of a Sabbatarian there. We do this out of an ongoing responsibility to imitate our Creator. Calvin, right? I'm quoting from his Sermon 5 on Deuteronomy 5. He says, Do we therefore wish to keep spiritual rest? Yes, Calvin, what does that mean? Everything, then, that is said about God desisting from His works applies to us. For we must so conduct ourselves as to cease doing whatever seems good to us and what our nature craves. If God's example does not motivate us, we only demonstrate that we really do not want anything from Him, and that by no means do we seek our happiness, but prefer to live by our own knowledge to our own poverty and misery. Wow. But Calvin, are you saying that we just need to cease from sin? Like that's what it means to obey the fourth commandment? Because that's what some people say you mean. That's what some of the early church fathers meant. That's what some parts of Aquinas seem to say. All right? Calvin in the next quote, talking about how we need to take great pains to ensure our Sundays are free for worship. He says, we have to note that there is more and that indeed it would be a meager thing to have a rest regarding physical activity, but not involving anything else. So what is necessary then? Yes, Calvin, tell me. That we should strive together toward a higher end than rest than this rest here. Right? He's talking merely about spiritual rest. He said that we should desist from our works, which are able to impede us, from meditating on the works of God, from calling on His name, and from exercising His Word. If we turn Sunday into a day for living it up, I love that modern translation, living it up for our sport or our pleasure, indeed, how will God be honored in that? Quite Sabbatarian-ish, to coin a word. It is not a mockery, is it not a mockery, even a profanation, is it not profaning God's name? But when shops are closed on Sunday, when people do not travel in the usual way, its purpose is to provide more leisure and more liberty for attending to what God commands us, that we might be taught by His Word, that we might convene together in order to confess the faith, to invoke His name, and to participate in the use of the sacraments. That is the end for which this order must serve us. Ooh, that's pretty strong, Calvin. You see how Calvin on the Sabbath can be kind of confusing if you're not reading all of Calvin well. 
If you only read him from the Institutes, you're not getting that. And it wasn't until recently that that was translated from the old French. That's pretty recent. I was so happy to find out somebody translated it from the old French. Because Michael Haken told me I, I had to get the, the sermons from Deuteronomy if I was going to touch Calvin on the Sabbath, which I had to do. He said, you got to read a sermon. Cal Haken reads French, so that's no big deal, right? Man, I don't want to learn French just for that. So Calvin's clear that Christians should spend the Lord's... We should give forethought to and intentional planning to desisting as we're able from our regular business so that we can have the Lord's Day to convene together and under the means of grace. And he goes further. He even warns about selfish abuse of the Lord's Day. Look at the next quote. Now let us consider together those who call themselves Christians. We might translate it those so-called Christians. What they require of themselves on Sunday. There's a large group that thinks that Sunday exists for the purpose of enabling them to attend to their own affairs and who reserve this day for that purpose, as if there were no others throughout the week for deliberating their business. For though the bell tolls for the sermon, that means church bells start going, it's time for church, what happens? They seem to only have time for their own affairs and for one thing or another. The rest glut themselves and are shut up in their houses because they do not dare manifest a, a scorn on the streets. They don't want to walk around outside. They want to hide so nobody sees them breaking the Sabbath. In any case, Sunday is nothing more than a retreat for them in which they stand aloof from the church of God. Calvin, you could be writing that today. And that does not sound like the anti-Sabbatarian Calvin that a lot of people paint a picture of. Right? So does that mean we need to set the whole day, Calvin? I mean, I get it. Just, just we, got, we need to go to church. Is that what you're saying? Just, as long as we check that box of going to church. Next quote. Moreover, let us realize that it's not only for coming to the sermon that Sunday is, interest, is in, instituted, but in order that we might devote all the rest of time to praising God. Indeed, for although He nurtures us every day, Nevertheless, we do not sufficiently meditate on the favors He bestows upon us in order to magnify them. It is true that it would be a poor thing if we did not think about the benefits of God except for Sunday. But on other days, seeing that we are so occupied with our affairs, we are not as much open to serve God as on a day which is totally dedicated to this. Right? Worldly business, not evil. But it does distract us during the week. We don't have time to set aside and think about God and contemplate His work of creation and redemption. But the whole day, the totality of the Lord's Day is set aside for you to think about God. Bring it, Calvin. And then... Towards the end of page 180, Calvin begins to say, Such observance of the Lord's Day is the beginning of proper worship that drives throughout the rest of the week. Right? We don't forget about the Sabbath on Monday. 
Thus we ought to observe Sunday as if it was a tower. Right? I love this imagery. Sunday is a tower that we might climb upon up, climb up it in order to contemplate the works of God from afar in a way in which we're neither impeded nor occupied by anything else so that we might, so that we might be able to extend to all our senses to recognize the benefits and favors with which He has enlarged us. And when Sunday is able to help us practice that, that is to consider the works of God, then certainly once we have meditated on His works for a long time in order to know how to benefit from them, we will surrender to Him all the rest of time. For this meditation will already have formed and polished us, and we will be induced to thank God on Monday and all the rest of the week. But when Sunday is not spent, when Sunday is spent not only in pastimes full of vanity, but in things which are entirely contrary to God, it seems that one has not celebrated, not at all celebrated Sunday and celebrated God. Right? So to take that imagery, the Lord's Day is this tower upon which we climb up. In a sense, we get closer to God on the Lord's Day and meditate upon His works. And the effects of that meditation polishes us, right? It, it warms us. We're warmed by the fire of God's love, and that warmth lingers with us throughout the week. And this Lord's Day is this kind of regular rhythm of coming to God, approaching the throne of grace, being fed by His means of grace, it's not just Lord's Day worship, Lord's Day observance helps us recharge our batteries, use a modern thing, though it can do that. But there's a, a soul warming and shaping and polishing that happens, and that's significant. And it doesn't, it's not just isolated to the Lord's Day, it, it lingers, right? We can think back to Sunday, remember the sermon. Should linger, should ring in our ears throughout the rest of the week, thinking about God. Right? Calvin says that Sabbath, Sabbath observance, Sunday observance, Lord's Day observance means the entire day requires forethought. We put our worldly business in order as much as we're able before the Lord's Day so that we can dedicate the Lord's Day to meditation upon God and works of mercy, works of piety. And we should do that for the, the whole day should be consecrated for that. So in conclusion, the caricature that Calvin was against the Sabbath, I think is wrong. I think it's poorly researched. They haven't read enough of Calvin yet. They haven't read later Calvin. And I fully admit that there are sections of Calvin that seem to be posturing him against the Sabbath. But I also think historically he has reason to speak that way. Speaking against the, the church at Rome and all their festivals and all their different things. Telling his people they're free. They're free from that. Writing against Roman Catholic Apologists. Let's move on. Francis Turretin, or 
Francois Turatini. If you want his original name, non-anglicized name. Turretin, just very briefly, he's got a great section on the Sabbath. I'm not going to summarize it all for you. Um, but he lays some solid groundwork for a lot of the second and third generation reformers to build upon and um, very Puritan-like in his rigor and logic. Very well done. But he emphasizes that Genesis 2 is the foundation of the moral command for us today. So he's tying it. Not just that Sabbath, the fourth commandment, is a ceremonial law it's done away with or anything like that. And he uses a lot of the arguments that you've heard already in this class to defend that. You know, The Sabbath started with Moses. What's Exodus 16 doing before Sinai? That doesn't make sense. You know, things like that. Um, <clears throat> so yesterday we concluded by looking at Henry Bullinger or Heinrich Bullinger um, and his views in detail on the Sabbath, looking at the con a continental reformer, in part because I want to impress upon you that the thesis that the English Puritans invented the day of rest or invented the idea of the Christian Sabbath is poppycock. Um, so, to review... Bullinger's doctrine of the Sabbath, as found in his exposition of the Fourth Commandment in his decades, which again was more influential in its time than even Calvin was in England. That was the standard textbook for decades, and it's called the decades, um, in England before Calvin was there, before his works were there. So, Bullinger taught that the Fourth Commandment in its uh, application for us today is still grounded in Genesis 2. Nothing new there. He's extending the tradition. We might say in modern theological terms, he agrees that Sabbath rest is a creation ordinance grounded in Genesis 2. He also believes that it is universal. It's incumbent upon every man that they ought to worship our Lord one day out of seven. Um, it's not just for God's people. He agrees that it's perpetual, right? It's part of moral law. Moral law doesn't change. That's a standard Puritan syllogism. It's in the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments are binding forever and always. That's the standard of righteousness. Moral law doesn't change. Therefore, the Fourth Commandment doesn't change the obligation of it. He will say, to skip down to the bottom, there are ceremonial aspects of the Fourth Commandment's observance that do change. So he agrees with what we would say there are ceremonial laws that are done away with in Christ, and we're not bound by those Jewish legislations of the Fourth Commandment. Um, but the moral core of it remains for all people for all time. It sounds to me like a pretty standard Puritan view of the Fourth Commandment on the continent before we even get to the English Puritans. And so looking at page 183 in our notes we will begin to get into the Puritans. You can see some quotes there um, in the first little paragraph uh, and in the footnotes. You know, some historians would say that the Puritan doctrine of the Sabbath is a bit of English originality and is, first, is the first and perhaps only important English contribution to the development of Reformed theology. Right? 
not true. And another one says that Sabbatarianism became a distinguishing characteristic of Puritanism as early as the 1590s. While it is true that many Puritans, perhaps even most Puritans, were pretty strong Sabbatarians, it doesn't mean that they invented the doctrine. They just took their typical Puritan rigor and and looked at the doctrine and tried to apply it to themselves. And we could look a little bit more into the historical milieu, the historical setting of what's going on in that time. But just to briefly make a couple of points, you know, they, the Puritans wanted to continue to purify the Church of England. And they could not do that through ecclesiastical means, right? They were rejected a lot, sometimes even rejected, kicked out, ejected out of the church. And so what the best of them did in their sermons is they take the Sabbath and they drive it into the heart. And they do it in a way that is um, largely not seen, or at least on that scale before them. And so we're going to look at Nicholas Bound, and for the historians here, his name is spelled all sorts of different ways, uh, with a U, with a W, with an E, without an E, all of those different ways. But Nicholas Bound, his work on the Sabbath was the first full Christian treat, uh, uh, first full Puritan treatise on the issue. It became kind of the industry standard. It's very good. I showed it to you yesterday. I don't, I don't have it in here anymore. But it's, um, it's pretty good. And what I'd like to do is briefly go through and show you in Bound's own words that he believes in these same categories that Bullinger did. He's not making up something new. Right? Um, like Bullinger and Turretin before him, bound grounds weekly Sabbath rest in God's creation week pattern. Here's uh, the purpose of the, quote, the seven-day rest and the rest it intended to this end. First, that we might, this is bound speaking, first, that we might know God to be the creator of all things. And then that by the example of God we might rest from our own works, and by meditating upon the works of God might know whose great things those are, that God hath prepared for those who love Him at the end of this world. Right? The Sabbath serves as a signpost for this forgetful world. This is bound again. Quote, As they are ignorant or may easily mistake the way, God has set up, Marks set up along the highway for them to guide them. And so this was a notable and famous sign set up by God Himself to teach the forgetful world that God made it in six days and all things in it. And so, for Bound, the weekly rhythm of rest, God built into creation in Genesis 2, and it's there to be a billboard that you have to pass by every week that screams at you, You're not the Creator. God is the Creator. He's telling you to stop and remember, right? And that's significant. Bound makes clear that God purposefully chose to number seven days in a week. 
and that the sanctification of the seventh day points so clearly to creation that heathens who choose not to observe the Sabbath were therefore ignorant of the true creation story. Bound argues that the purpose of the seventh day and, and the rest that it tended to, uh, to this end. First, that we might know God. Wait, I'm going to skip that part. I already read that. The day of rest is our reminder that God is our creator. Furthermore, this logic from Bound warns that people should to de- that if people should forsake the Sabbath observance, they would likewise be made ignorant of the redemption to which the Lord's day points. Right? From the purpose of the Sabbath, we see, quote, how it is to be feared that if we also did not keep the memory of this seventh day that we do, that the memory of Christ's death and resurrection should be in time clean forgotten. For if the ignorance of the first seventh day bred heresy earlier in the Christian church, why may not the ignorance of the seventh day also uh, work in like effect in our time? Right? So he's saying forgetting the day is to our own detriment. We forget not only who the Creator is and what He has done, but who our Redeemer is and what He has done. Bound again, he argues that this is for everyone, so moving to the universal aspect of it. God, quote, would have none excluded from the sanctification of the Sabbath because that both servants and masters, as well as children and parents, and the strangers as well that are born in their home, are bound to the Lord and are made for His worship and service. Right? There will be no one within your household, within your gates, who is not under the duty to worship the Lord. So bound is pressing it for everyone. Furthermore, bound explains that the pattern of six days of work and one day of rest be just and equal in the eyes of all men, both Grecian and barbarian, slave and free. No one is free from the duty of Sabbath observance, Jew or Gentile, rich or poor. He presses particularly the duty given to heads of households in their responsibility to instruct and enforce Sabbath observance under their care, which is not surprising given his setting. Indeed, masters are particularly called not to overwork their slaves because the Lord has ordained a day for them to have rest. The universality of the Sabbath command is for all of creation. Similarly, Bound, like Bullinger and Turretin, argues that it is a perpetual command. He cites the English... Puritan William Perkins, in his commentary on Galatians 4, and bound, writes these words, Six days thou shalt labor, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord thy God, and contain moral and perpetual truth. He then talks about how heathens search in vain. They clamor and they claw. They're looking for the means and the object and the times of their worship. They can't find it. They stumble around in the dark for it. But God has revealed to us, right? Herein, says Bound, 
doth the glory of the church and the people of God consist, that the Lord by His word has given them the truth and not left them to their own inventions. Sounds like a little bit of a regulative principle bell ringing there. Right? God has revealed to us how we ought to worship. And we can't manipulate that or change that. It's not up to us. God has prescribed the, rel- the manner of their religion Himself. And so they have also the time which He for that purpose has Himself sanctified. Right? We sanctify the day because He first sanctified the day. It's significant that bound, quoting Perkins together, evidence both of their belief that the Sabbath commands of the Old Testament retain a morally binding status for New Testament believers. Right? And he argues for several reasons. First, the fourth commandment is one of the moral commandments, and it binds as well as them, us, for they are all of equal authority. Standard, reformed, especially Puritan syllogism there. Moral law is binding, fourth commandment is moral law, therefore fourth commandment is binding. He argues in some other ways, too, about the perpetuity of the binding moral standard. He says that Christians are just like the Jews. Therefore, it's binding on us. And by that, he means that Christians are in need of the clarity of God's moral commands, just as the Jews were. Quote, as in keeping ourselves from images, from blasphemy, from murder, from theft and adultery and such other like, why should we then imagine that in this one the Lord had privileged us above them? If they needed to be told what worship would look like and the, the regularity of it, and we, we're in continuity with them in our fallenness, why would we not also need that command for us? Right. He also argues, thirdly, that there's no reason given in the New, to, New Testament to believe that the Sabbath command has been removed. Quote, we do not find in the gospel that Christians have any further liberty granted to them in these days, that we may safely conclude that Christians are precisely to rest as the Jews were. End quote. This does not mean, contrary to his dejectors, that we're back under the yoke of the law again. We're not like the Jews in that manner. Our relationship to the law is fundamentally different. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law and all of its rigor and terror. We are free. Right? We're not bound by the ceremonial law and all of its demands. Instead, they have, quote, fewer things to do, and they are more simple, more plain, more easy, as of the hearing of the words and the receiving of the sacraments and the prayer. Side note, pastorally. As you're preaching through the law, the Pentateuch in particular, where it's fleshing out these ceremonial duties, it is good to thank the Lord that we're not under the burden of that anymore. Right? It's a gift. All of the rigors and the ceremonies and the washings and the slaughterings and, you know, church would look a whole lot different if we had to bring cattle in here every Sunday. Right? 
I mean, they have blood everywhere, right? The, the mud around the temple was so stained with iron from the blood of the animals that they had to slaughter by the thousands that it was red, right? We don't have to do any of that anymore, right? It's, it's easy. It's, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The new covenant is wonderful. For bound, the moral core of the fourth commandment remains binding, even though the ceremonial yoke had been lifted. Right? So we're, we're seeing in bound kind of the crystallization, the solidification of the kind of standard reformed interpretation of the fourth commandment. Much of what he says is similar to what I've been teaching you in this class. Right? In a very real sense, there's nothing new under the sun. Next, Bound shows that the logic of the Sabbath command extends even to Christian magistrates. Here's where the Baptist in me starts to get a little squeamish, right? He cites the language of within thy gates in the Exodus portion of the command. He says, quote, For even as the walls and the gates of the city are, part, are the furthest part of it, and whatsoever is within the gates is under the government of him that rules that city. So by figurative speech he means the utmost coast and to the furthest border of the jurisdiction of any. Right? End quote. Every square inch of a magistrate's reign should observe the Sabbath. Even foreigners and those of other religions, quote, as he enjoys the benefit of his government, he should yield to the outward practice of the church at least. So here... We are, what, 40, 40 years before the um, original Westminster Confession was codified, where they give powers to the magistrate, powers to the state to enforce uh, Christianity. And you see where that's starting to come from, right? They have an understanding of church and state that hasn't quite worked itself out yet. Bound says that it behooves governors to produce laws, quote, for the preservation of this rest, with civil punishments to be inflicted upon them all that, that shall break it. Right? Could you imagine? That seems so foreign from our society. Somebody going out, you know, riding a horse, riding a horse unnecessarily on the Sabbath. Like, sorry, you're going to jail. To put, it in, to put their applications in modern terms, you know, just going for a joyride on Sunday afternoon. Like, lock them up. It's a fascinating historical moment to go in there and look at. Bound saw no distinction between the religious and the secular on the matter of Sabbath observance. Instead, the Christian magistrate had the duty to promote the good of all mankind and to punish the evildoers by creating and enforcing Sabbath legislation. Right? This is, he's trying to be consistent here. If it's a universally binding, perpetually binding command, if it's moral law, then why would we not enforce the outward observance of it? Just being, it's for the good of the people. You can see why he would go that way and why many of the Puritans did. So, 
again, you're seeing my subthesis that the English Puritans didn't invent this day. Right? Bound is in line with Bullinger and others before him. And he's pressing it a little bit further, perhaps, than other people did. He's expanding it. His book, part two of his book, The True Sanctification of the Day, um, he, he, he starts applying it in a whole host of ways with typical Puritan uh, acumen and rigor. But he's not novel in his interpretation. He grounds it in Genesis 2. He says it's perpetual, it's universal in its scope, and it's binding. And Bound's work in particular is, as the first one, and one of the longer ones, longer treatises on the issue, it becomes the foundation for many theologians and Puritans after him. His work is cited a lot. You can look on uh, 188. I've got a bunch of other Puritans who wrote on the Sabbath. Lewis Bailey, Henry Scooter, William Gouge, Thomas Shepard, Richard Baxter. Baxter's got a pretty good bit on rest. Um, be wise when you're reading through Baxter. Don't, don't just take it all. Um, George Swinnock. All sorts. And, and now, just to be fair, there is a minority position as well. There are anti-Sabbatarian Puritans out there. Um, I'm struggling to remember any off the top of my head right now. Uh, but there are, there are a few out there. They're for sure the minority position, though. Um, they have to modify their doctrine of moral law. Um, so, moving on, historically in England, about the mid-1600s, we have the Westminster Confession of Faith, right? the distillation of the doctrine that was solidified and Debated at the Westminster Assembly. Very fine document upon which much of our confession is built. Much, most of our confession is built. It's a really fine document, right? Not perfect, obviously, or we wouldn't have tweaked it, right? We Baptists. And you'll, I'll read from it and you'll see it sounds very familiar if you've ever studied our confession on the, on the doctrine. Article 21 of the original Westminster says, God may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan, Satan under any visible representation or any way not prescribed in Scripture. Right? On the contrary, divine command in Scripture is necessary to regulate our true worship. And they say, on the elements of proper Christian worship, as it is a law of nature that in general a due proportion of time to be set apart for the worship of God, so in His Word by a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment, binding, in all, binding all men in all ages, God hath particularly appointed one day in Sabbath, seven to be a Sabbath, to be kept holy unto Him. Did you hear that? Positive, moral, perpetual commandment. Right? This is what we're talking about here. This isn't coming up out of a vacuum. The Westminster men are building upon the theology of the men before them, guys like Bound, guys like William Perkins, guys like Bullinger and Turretin.
we can we could keep studying the expansion of this, the application of this, but we'll move on. This isn't a class on Puritanism in history. As wonderful as that would be, though. Um, it's also worth just noting in passing, John Knox in Scotland was um, a fairly rigorous Sabbatarian, as the Scots in general were. And you can pursue that uh, on your own if you are so interested. Now, there is a, what I believe, apocryphal story that can't actually be confirmed in history, but the, the, the rumor is, again, there's nowhere in history that, that I have found uh, that this is officially recorded, but the rumor is that John Knox went to Geneva and he uh, saw Calvin, and Calvin was, was they, they played a game that they called bowling. He was bowling on the Sabbath. It was kind of like bocce balls on the grass. And he was absolutely mortified that John Calvin would be bowling on the Sabbath. And he went up and rebuked him. Um, again, that has lingered in church history, but to my knowledge, neither Calvin nor Knox mention it in their writings. And so... We'll have to wait till glory to ask them if it actually happened or not. Um, if you read much of John Knox, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see him doing that. Um, so even, even back then, with you know, the rigorous clarity of articulation of this doctrine, people still greatly disagreed in its application. So let's go across the pond to Jonathan Edwards, right? I'm not going to get into the debate about whether he's a Puritan or not. It all depends on who defines Puritan. Uh, in theology, he is. Right? Um, Calvin, or excuse me, Edwards, you know, who is largely considered America's the greatest theologian that America has ever produced, and I think with just cause, uh, he teaches the same Sabbath theology in New England. He wrote a sermon, preached a sermon called The Perpetuity and Change of the Sabbath. And if you're going to study Sabbath in church history, that's a staple. You need to make sure you read that one. All right? And he addresses the same Puritan arguments and even tweaks a little bit of what he thinks is deficient in Calvin's view of the Sabbath. He argues that it is sufficiently clear that a certain proportion of time is proper to devote to the worship of God. Right? He's using his logic as Edwards does so well. If there is a God, and if He is a creator, and if He has done these things, then it is incumbent upon His creation to give Him honor and glory. But it's not fitting for us to only and ever do that. And so how do we determine what the proportion of time is that we do do that? If certain proportions of time are more suitable than others, then great care must be taken to select the proper proportion of time. Right? He says, quote, It is unreasonable to suppose any other than that God's working six days and resting the seventh and blessing and hallowing it was to be of general use in determining this matter. And that it was written that the practice of mankind in general might some way or other be regulated by it. What could be the meaning of God resting on the seventh day and blessing it 
which he did before the giving of the fourth commandment, unless he hallowed and blessed it with respect to mankind. For he did not bless it and sanctify it with respect to himself, or that he within himself might observe it. That is most absurd. And it is unreasonable to suppose that he hallowed it with respect only to the Jews, that particular nation which rose up above 2,000 years later. Right? For Edwards, it's clear. It's inconceivable. Why would, God, would, he, would he hallow and bless the day for himself? To what end? Why? What, 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 is, what good does that serve? Right? It doesn't make sense. And it doesn't make sense, as some argue today, that he blessed it and sanctified it then. It's of no use until Sinai, years and years and years later. And then from Sinai to Calvary, it's in, in effect. But then after the resurrection, it's of no use again. Just weird punctuation of redemptive history that's, that that day is relevant for. Doesn't make sense. Edwards also makes several arguments for the transfer of the worship day from Saturday to Sunday. Right? He said there's nothing in the fourth commandment itself that could afford an objection against this day being the day that should be the Sabbath. Right? There's nothing necessarily in the fourth commandment that binds it to Saturday. That's what he says. Second, the ancient church was commanded to keep a seventh day in commemoration of the work of creation is an argument that the keeping of the weekly Sabbath in commemoration of the work of redemption and not any reason against it. Right? That is... Lord's Day Sabbath observance commemorates the completion of Christ's work in new creation. Just like the old Sabbath day commemorated the creation, the first creation, the completion of the first creation. Similarly, he argues that the scriptures speak of Christ resting from the work of redemption as being a parallel with God resting from the work of creation. Right? So... Allah Hebrews 4. Also, while I'm thinking about it, the other uh, Saturday, I was eating supper across from Dr. Waldron. We were talking about how the class is going. And he said, John, I hear that you and Rich don't agree on Hebrews 4. I said, well, yeah, you know, and I wrote on Hebrews 4, I argued it was future, and it's following Beale and Gaffin, and and then I reread Barcellus again, and he's quoting Owen, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about it. I'm, I'm sympathetic to it, but I'm, I'm just not, not quite convinced yet. But uh, I, I highly respect that position. He said, ha uh-huh. well, I'm glad you think he's wrong, because I think he's wrong, too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. So, uh, I'll let you, when you get to Dr. Waldron's part on Hebrews 4 and his Lord's Day book, if you're reading that one, you can... See how he takes it. Uh, Back to Edwards. Uh, Edwards goes on. He makes lots of of arguments for the transfer of the day. He says, The Holy Spirit has implicitly told believers that the Sabbath, which was instituted in commemoration of the old... Let's see. There we were told that when God, I think I left out a knot. There we were told that when God, 
So it is not to be supposed that we... Uh, anyway, I have to go back and check that. Anyway, Edward goes on to make nearly a dozen arguments for the transfer of the Sabbath. The fact that Jesus was buried on the Jewish Sabbath, Christ was raised on Sunday, that the day is called Lord, the Lord's Day. You know, church history confirms all this fact. So, many of the same arguments you've been hearing in this class. So, you can pull that, that, um, that sermon up online and read it sometime. It's good. Edwards corrects those who interpret the Sabbath commandment only in terms of spiritual rest, right? Which is a lot of what you hear today from the New Covenant guys, right? Christ is our rest, right? He says, as it, and if the Sabbath commandment stands in force now only signifying spiritual Christian rest and holy behavior at all times, that is, we rest from our sinful works. So it's nothing tied to a day. We, we, should, we should do that all the time. He says, it doth not remain as one of the Ten Commands, but rather it remains merely as a summary of all the commands. So if you gut the fourth commandment of any weekly rhythm and you stretch it out and say, we rest in Christ all the time from our sins, then all you've done is made it tautological. You've, you've said, you got the other nine, and then the fourth commandment is saying what the other nine say. That make sense? So if the other nine are morally binding, and the fourth commandment then just becomes, don't sin. It doesn't make sense. It's irrelevant at that point. And why would, he, why would God put irrelevancy right in the center of the, the hinge of the Ten Commandments? It doesn't make sense. So, Edwards is following the Westminster divines, and they... The theologians before them, 